Welcome, poemcasters. We have Dr. Robert Boffman here from the University of Cincinnati. He was in town for grand rounds at our hospital system, and we just had to get him on the podcast. He's considered by many to be the world leader in sarcoidosis. Bob, it's a great honor to interview you on the show. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. So I am by no means an expert in sarcoidosis, so I've also got Dr. Jermaine Jackson here on the show to help me with the interview. So we're going to start with an easy question, but as I thought about it more, it's actually fairly complex. So what is sarcoidosis? Well, that is a difficult question because it's a disease of unknown etiology. I think of it as an inflammatory disease. It's not an autoimmune disease because you don't see in autoimmune diseases granulomas. Sarcoidosis's main feature is the finding of granulomas. The cause of that is still unknown. The outcome of it is also quite variable. It can be self-limiting, 20 to 40% of patients. It can go on to cause devastating forms in the lungs, the eyes, the brain, the heart. So as we bring national speakers on, I'm always interested to hear their stories of how they got to where they're at in their life. How did you become interested in sarcoid and ultimately become one of the world's foremost thought leaders in sarcoidosis? During my residency, um, I was given the opportunity to have a uh, research lab. Uh, so I measured, started measuring ACE levels. It had just been described to give you an idea about my age. <laughs> and uh, so I started measuring it in, in my second year of residency started seeing patients till I could measure their ACE levels, and therefore I suddenly got patients coming to see me. Once you tell people you're interested in sarcoid, they start sending you patients. <laughs> a few years later, when I was doing my fellowship, I introduced Bronco-Alvaro Lavage to the Cincinnati area. And so one of the groups that I started lavaging was patients with sarcoidosis. And it's that combination of the immune response that you can measure with BAL that was fascinating to me about sarcoidosis, plus most of my patients got better. And that was always a nice thing. Uh, if you think about lung cancer, IPF, and COPD, they don't always get better. And so the next few years, I started looking at drugs other than prednisone to keep them better. And that's kind of where we've been since then. So what do you think is the most challenging aspect about caring for patients with sarcoidosis? I think there are at least two or three challenging parts. First of all is the diagnosis because it can be difficult at times to make a diagnosis. Sometimes it can be very easy. It can be trying to figure out what the prognosis of the patient is that they're sitting in front of you. Are they going to be one of those people who does well, since many people do? Or are they going to be somebody that's going to have a progressive, ongoing disease requiring long-term therapy? So we're going we're gonna to go into a, different, a couple different sections here. We had people submit questions to us from our division as far as sarcoidosis. And so they, they really broke out nicely into several different sections. So we're going to start with pulmonary hypertension and sarcoidosis. Bob, you've done an extensive amount of work uh, in sarcoidosis. And I think one of the new frontiers is sarcoidosis and pulmonary hypertension. Clearly, I think this is one of the challenging aspects of taking care of this patient population. What is the approach at your center as it relates to patients with sarcoidosis or more specifically pulmonary hypertension associated with sarcoidosis? What's the approach in terms of diagnosis and treatment? Well, we're actually fairly sensitive to pulmonary hypertension as a cause of problems. Uh, we recognized early, uh, about 10 years ago that this was one of the reasons why people were still dying from the disease despite good therapy for the inflammation. So any patient in our clinic who has persistent shortness of breath, 
whether it's mild to moderate, but not responsive to treatment, we would consider for pulmonary hypertension. I like the six-minute walk. If it's reduced or if they're desaturating, that's a high signal for me. Others like to use the diffusion capacity. If the DLCO is less than 40 or 50 percent, another signal that they should be considered. Echocardiogram to me is just a step on the pathway. It's useful for a screening test, but only in my mind if it's unless it's stone cold normal. If the echo is perfectly normal, then maybe I stop there, but usually we go on to right heart catheterization. Is it fair to say almost all of your patients are getting right heart cath in that situation? Almost all of our patients get a right heart cath in this situation. We explain to the patients the importance of it, how it changes treatment, and the finding of pulmonary hypertension at least 25% of these patients have it on the basis of diastolic dysfunction, and the simple therapy there of diuresis may be all they need. They're going to do better. They live longer than if they have precapillary pulmonary hypertension. So that's why we're so keen on getting a right heart cath. Prevalence. In terms of prevalence, how, how prevalent do you think pulmonary hypertension is in the, in the sarcoidosis patient population? Well, this has been studied in four, at least four centers across the world that looked in their clinics. And uh, the lowest number was 5%, and that was in Japan. The highest number was from uh, Saudi Arabia, where it was 20%. Uh, two other centers, one in Detroit and one in London, found it 8 to 10%. This is all comers. This is not just patients with persistent shortness of breath. If you look at the patients who you're worried about because they're still short of breath, ours, New York, uh, uh, Milan, 50% of the time they have pulmonary hypertension. So I think of it like scleroderma. This is a condition where in scleroderma patients, about 5 to 10% of the time, they'll get pulmonary hypertension. We're much more sensitive to it in scleroderma than we are in sarcoidosis, and I think that needs to be changed. So any patient with persistent dyspnea in sarcoidosis, right heart cath? Yeah, that's my view. How often are you using vasoactive agents in treating pH in sarcoid? Again, uh, an area that is expanding because we now have reasonable studies that have shown benefit, that the mortality is starting to look better, similar to what has happened in idiopathic pulmonary hypertension as the drugs became more widely used. You started to see retrospectively that the survival was much better than without use of the drugs. At your institution, do you guys take a multidisciplinary approach to this patient cohort? And if so, can you describe what that structure looks like? For the pulmonary hypertension, I also run a pulmonary hypertension clinic with a cardiologist. That was um, something we had set up, and that poor cardiologist had to suddenly start seeing a lot more sarcoid patients than he (laughs) thought he was signing up for. Um, So he and I see the patients together. Switch over to cardiac sarcoid. What's your approach to the diagnosis and treatment of cardiac sarcoidosis? Here, again, suspicion has to be high. And I think that um, the recommendations are that all patients with sarcoidosis have an EKG and with or without an echocardiogram. I think that more importantly is asking them if they have any symptoms to suggest palpitation. If they have anything at all like that, I get a 24-hour halter. That's a much more sensitive test, I think, for arrhythmias. Is there a specific diagnostic modality that you prefer? In other words, cardiac MRI versus PET scan? After we've done that screening, after we say that, look, I'm a little nervous about cardiac sarcoid, you have two choices. You can do a cardiac MRI or you can do a cardiac PET. And I think some of that is institution-specific. Our institution does a very good job of cardiac PET, and I happen to like that test. I also think they're complementary tests. 
I think of the MRI in, a good, in the good hands that the MRI can tell me a lot more likelihood whether the patient does or does not have cardiac involvement. But if I'm really worried about whether they have active inflammatory disease, I put a lot more faith in the PET. So when you find that patient who has hypermetabolism or showing evidence that may be suggestive of inflammation, whom do you treat? With what do you treat them with? And more importantly, how long? Because I know this is an area of controversy when it comes to cardiac sarcoidosis. Well, the first thing I do is to determine whether they should have a defibrillator or not. We always will have that in the back of our mind, and the Heart Rhythm Society has helped make some guidelines for that. If we get past that, then you need to think about anti-inflammatory therapy. I think that goes hand in glove. The device is only a safety net. It is not a treatment for the disease. So we usually start off with methotrexate with or without prednisone. I won't give them prednisone if their ejection fraction is good. That's above 50%. And they're not having severe arrhythmias. But I'll still treat them with methotrexate. The advantage there is that they don't have all the side effects of steroids. And down the road, this is probably an effective drug. Monitoring, if they've got the device in, and they're having arrhythmias, that becomes the simplest thing to monitor. You just see their PVCs, and they start going away as they get better. And you can and you withdraw therapy, and they start getting worse, their PVC number goes up. So this is just as simple as any other test I can find for cardiac sarcoid. Serial PET scans, some institutions are looking at this, and there's an ongoing study in Canada about whether serial PET scans is a way to evaluate patients to make the decision and to monitor while on therapy. Have to keep in mind that we have no cure for sarcoidosis. So you're treating for symptoms. And so if they have no symptoms, they have a normal ejection fraction, they have no rhythm, it's a little bit hard to justify the continuum on treatment instead of just careful monitoring. Some data or some literature would suggest that patients who have severe cardiac dysfunction, more specifically an ejection fraction of less than 30%, they often don't respond to anti-inflammatory uh, agents because it's thought that this is related to sort of end-stage myocardial scarring or fibrosis that's present. What's your approach to these type patients? Well, that's the Japan. Most of that is the Japanese studies. And interestingly enough, the Japanese uh, don't use much methotrexate. They're just starting to come on, and they don't use any of the other drugs. Um, but in any case, there are two studies, one from our institution and another Mark Judson just published, looking at corticosteroids. Mark's study was specifically at corticosteroids. Our was looking at all immunosuppressives. And in that study, both of those studies, we found patients with ejection fractions less than 30% that still had a 5 to 10% improvement or more in their ejection fractions. So I don't think that these patients always have end-stage fibrosis. Once again, the PET scan is useful here because if the PET's lighting up, we would think that there's still ongoing inflammation and would still want to treat them more aggressively. One question that we're often faced with is the so-called de novo cardiac sarcoidosis patients, meaning that they don't have evidence of potential granulomas or lymphadenopathy or no other sites, extra, uh, extra cardiac sites of sarcoidosis. How prevalent do you think de novo cardiac sarcoidosis is, and what's your approach to this patient? I think isolated cardiac, like isolated neurosarcoidosis, probably represents somewhere around 5 to 10% of patients with sarcoidosis have um, that type of isolated disease. And the other big one is eye. Um, depends a little bit on how hard you look. What we find is that when we do our cardiac PETs now, we scan the rest of the body at the same time. So it's not uncommon. I would say about a half of those patients will find another granuloma area that lights up, usually the mediastinum. And so we do an EBUS and we make a diagnosis there. So the truly de novo case 
not uncommon. Um, and what happens in some of those patients over time is that the other form of the disease shows up. So a year later, they start having reticular nodule infiltrates on their chest x-ray, or they'll develop a case of iritis, and you suddenly have a diagnosis of sarcoid. Some people have started once again looking at the role of antimicrobials for the treatment of sarcoidosis. One such protocol is the so-called CLEAR protocol, which uses concomitant levofloxacin, ethambutol, azithromycin, and rifampin. What are your thoughts about the CLEAR regimen, and more specifically, the role of antimicrobials in the armamentarium of treatment for sarcoidosis? Well, let me start off by saying I'm part of the CLEAR trial. This is a multi-center NIH-supported trial led by Wander Drake, who's been a, in the forefront of the four drugs, levofloxacin and azithromycin, we know have anti-inflammatory properties. We use the macrolides all the time for bronchiolitis. So um, one of the things in the CLEAR trial that we're now doing is that we're trying to separate the effect as an antimicrobial from its anti-inflammatory properties. And it's appealing to say that CLEAR because it would also work for propionibacter acne, may be a, a generalized therapy for these patients. Uh, how long are you treating patients with the CLEAR trial? Yeah. One of the things I would like to point out that the CLEAR um, should not be considered part of your standard regimen. In Wander's original papers, approximately half the patients dropped out within the four months of the study hmm. because of toxicity. So right now, if you're going to use the CLEAR regimen, if your patient and you decide that's the best choice, then you treat for four, uh, 16 weeks. The first eight weeks is all four therapies, and then you drop down to um, ethambutol and rifamutin. So we've talked about cardiac sarcoid, we've talked about pH and sarcoid. Let's switch over to funding and cost. Why do you think that there is uh, a limit to funding in sarcoidosis compared to other disease entities? I think one of the problems that's been sarcoidosis is that there's no good model. Now, there's been attempts to try to develop models for sarcoidosis, and um, none of those have actually met the, all the criteria of a systemic granulomatous response, not just limited to the lungs. I think the other limitation is that such a diverse outcome tends to make it hard for people to focus down on one form or the other. Pulmonary patients, even that seems to be uh, difficult because we get chronic pulmonary, we have acute disease, Lufgren syndrome, and so treatment trials really need to focus on one form or the other of the disease. And that's been something that we've only been starting to do in the last few years. What do you think it will take to change the course of the current funding strategy? I think that to change the course of the funding strategy right now is that we do need to have animal models and better designed clinical trials. I like to think about sepsis and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. I was involved in clinical trials for those for many, many years. In the first few years of both of those agents, they took a long time to get the initial endpoint that you could use. But we now have good endpoints, especially in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, that drugs have been developed that show a change in the endpoint. And that endpoint has turned out to be a good surrogate marker for outcome for the patients involved. We just lack that sort of overwhelming agreement about those endpoints in sarcoidosis, and that's what we're working on. Recently, there have been a great deal of attention uh, regarding the cost of medications in the United States. One such agent that has received some spotlight is repository corticotropin injections, also known as HP Actar gel. There are some critics that believe that the benefits of this agent does not outweigh the cost associated with it. What is your response to this type of criticism, and what place does Actar have in the treatment of patients with sarcoidosis? 
Right, let me start off by front by saying that I've been supported by Mallinckrodt over the last few years in studies of RCI, repository corticotropin injection. And I actually have published two papers on this, and we currently have uh, an interest in a couple new trials that they've been looking at. I think RCI right now in the landscape is a third to fourth line agent. It's for patients who are failing other treatments, including anti-TNFs, or cannot take anti-TNFs because of absolute contraindications such as cancer or tuberculosis. This is where this or rituximab are where they fit in. So let's move on to talk about what can our patients do. So when given the diagnosis of sarcoid, patients often want to actively engage in the treatment process. They'll often ask you questions such as, what can I do to help myself? What's your answer to that? Well, I always like to tell people um, the first thing they can do for themselves is to kind of get involved with some of the sarcoid community, which they may or may not want to do. Um, uh, one of the things I've found over the years is that since about half these patients get better, they're just looking for initial information. And then after that, within a, within a year or two, everything has gone away and they kind of forget about it. The other half have chronic disease and they're more interested. The Foundation for Sarcoid Research is one of those resources that they can use. There's actually a registry there that they can sign up for, and there are over 2,800 patients in the registry, uh, over two-thirds of them from the U.S., but it's across the world. And we're providing information out of that registry about the what's going on with sarcoid. So that's one of the things. As far as lifestyle changes, well, you have to be sensible. Fatigue is a common problem. More than half the patients with sarcoid have fatigue. Sometimes with sleep abnormalities, uh, sleep, sleep apnea need to uh, be assessed for that. They need to take good health for themselves. Diet modification, the only thing I'm adamant about is being sure that they're not taking too much vitamin D. This goes against the counterculture. Vitamin D is the drug that fears everything. <laughs> Sarcoid is one of the few conditions in which it's not a good thing to take, and they need to talk with their doctors about checking their vitamin D, 125 or calcitrol levels, before they go on large amounts of vitamin D. I do have patients who have gone gluten-free who say that that really works well for them. As a clinical trial person, I really haven't been able to decide how to figure out how to do a trial for gluten-free diet. So I tell people that's interesting, but I'm not sure whether it's going to make a difference or not. Beyond that, there really isn't any data for anything else. I'm glad you answered the question as it related to dietary changes and supplements. And as you know, we're in this day and age where information is readily at our hands with the Internet, so-called Dr. Google. A question that I'm often asked uh, by my patients in my office is, what about the Marshall Protocol or things of that nature? What's your response when this type of question is presented to you? The Marshall Protocol actually is two different things. And so uh, Dr. Marshall is a PhD, by the way, and not an MD. And the, the protocol has been collecting uh, more anecdotal than anything else. It is an early form in some ways of the CLEAR protocol, which is a much more scientific base. So part of the Marshall Protocol was an antimicrobial regimen, usually initially using doxycycline. The other part of the Marshall Protocol was to avoid large amounts of vitamin D, which I think is reasonable, and to use um, Benicar, which is a um, ACE inhibitor, and actually it's an ARB inhibitor, and thinking that because ACE is elevated in patients with sarcoid, if you inhibit that, that would help. There's actually nothing to support that, and there are a large number of my patients on ACE inhibitors, and so therefore... The only importance to me is that if we're on an ACE inhibitor, ACE level is going to come back as undetectable because the ACE test is a biologic test. It's not an actual protein measurement. And so if you have an ACE inhibitor on board, your ACE level is going to be zero, so therefore it's not worth testing it. 
I don't think it has any impact on disease. It hasn't any, any impact on my patients, and others who have looked at it have not seen any impact there. So given all your years of experience with this disease state, what do you see as the future of sarcoidosis? Well, I think the future of sarcoidosis is bright. Obviously, I'm an optimist here. But I think that um, for over the last 10, 15 years, we've developed a group of anti-inflammatory drugs that we know are effective in sarcoidosis. So the next step is to do what the rheumatologists have done, is they don't think so much about um, giving prednisone first and then starting these other drugs when they can't tolerate it. They think about starting these other drugs and only using prednisone when the, the patient is miserable. So I think we need to change our attitude to start using these other drugs, to realize that we have things that we can offer patients up front. That means that we need to identify which patients need those other drugs up front. We also have the patients who are not going to respond to anti-inflammatory drugs. And for that person, you don't want to keep giving 40 milligrams of prednisone. You need to figure out why they're not responding. Do they have pulmonary hypertension? We now have drugs to work for that. Do they have fibrosis of their lungs or elsewhere? We're starting to look at drugs for the fibrosis part. Is their only problem their fatigue? In which case, neurostimulants may be helpful. So I think that we have options, but you need to kind of get out of the mold that the only drug that we can use here is prednisone. And that's really, I think, that in the next few years, we need to continue to work on that. Thank you very much for taking the time to drop by and do this interview with us. Anything you'd like to close with? I do point out that sarcoidosis is a disease that you're always interested in. I find people in many forms of medicine, not just pulmonary, see patients with sarcoidosis, find it a very interesting disease and sometimes challenging disease. And just to kind of point out that we do still have treatment options for them. Well, thank you very much. Until next time, keep reading, keep streaming, and keep breathing. Mm-hmm.